Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Tim nice. Sanderson, the EVP of National Practice Lead Retail at JLL. Tim, thanks for joining. Thank you. Great to be here. We're recording live, recording live from our offices at 16 York. I don't want to date stamp it, but it's getting near the end of 2022. Why the mystery? Why don't you? Well, because I, I, you never know when this yeah. thing's going to get released. I don't well, want it to be. We do know it's going to come out right before Black Friday. Oh, there you so, go. Yeah, oh, it's going to come out in so two this weeks. Will be fresh. Okay. Don't worry. Oh, good. So. Okay, so let's and we can. That's a good. That's good to note. Yeah. So yeah, so we're recording November second, something like that. And so we're going to be discussing, of course, the state of retail in the Canadian marketplace, focused predominantly on the GTA, but around the country, and just the impact of COVID and what we're looking at post-COVID. Of course, 2022, we're, we're out of COVID. You know, Knock on wood, I guess, that it's not coming back in any significant way. And retail was one of the most impacted, but I would say to a lesser degree than what many had that's, this is this is my my hypothesis for the rest of this conversation. I think less than what many would have would have indicated or, or guessed pre COVID. Tim, thanks for joining. Thank you. So you're going to confirm my statement there. That, then we can all go home. I then guess. we can all yeah. go home, right? Retail's not dead. It's it's a wrap, man. We're done. Okay, good. <laughs> no, listen. I think uh, retail is definitely not dead. You know, retail as an asset class was under fire pre COVID. You know, given the um, emergence of e commerce. I mean, COVID did a lot to accelerate e-commerce, certainly in this country, North America, and around the world. I mean, we were seeing penetration rates of 4 to 6% e-commerce pre-COVID, and it went up to like 18 and 20, and some markets 30%. Which is still less than London and or England and True. US, right? True. Like That was always the common is, that's got so much more growth, and therefore retail bricks and mortar is certainly going to be yeah. struggling. Yeah. But that just hasn't happened in our, in our environment. Not to the same degree that it has in other places, for sure. So... Well, it can't just do to population density. Isn't that the, the general idea? It's part of it. And just, you know, the, the ability of the retailers to ramp up as quickly as they needed to during COVID. I mean, there were, you know, we saw what happened in the industrial sector and it's still booming, obviously. But, you know, how many million square foot warehouses does one group or one retail organization need? You know, so there's a finite number of square feet of industrial, excuse me, that I think this market's going to absorb over time. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll still see that. Okay, well, before we keep going down this rabbit hole, because I do want to talk about just sure. what did the world look like pre-COVID, during COVID, and now where we are today, sort of you know, end of 2022. But let's just set the stage. Tim, how'd you get into retail, JLL? <laughs> What's your kind of career trajectory look like? Well, I don't know. I've been at this a long time, so I got to think back to the early days. I graduated in one of the worst recessions of all time, I guess. Uh, certainly you mean worse. the current one? No. Uh, no, no, no. This one was interest rates were 18% back when I graduated the poli sci degree. So I went back to school and got a master's degree in urban planning and land development. Did a couple of different jobs uh, for some consulting firms. Worked in retail for CIBC, doing branch locations back in the day in the GTA, West GTA, which was fun. Then I worked for a company called Consumers Distributing, who I'm sure nobody listening to this remembers, but it was a catalog retailer uh, with stores right across the country. They also had a chain called Toy City, which was a chain um, very similar to Toys R Us. So that opportunity was great in that I learned the country and I learned every market from Vancouver and Victoria to, uh, to St. John's. And it was fantastic because if you're going to be in retail, you need to understand markets, plain and simple. And then an opportunity came along to start up business with some partners out of Seattle to open Costco warehouses all over Canada. And 
we built that up. And four years ago, we uh, brought that in business into JLL. And it's been great ever since. So I've always been around retail and always around uh, real estate. If we can do a quick little sidebar on the CIBC branch locations, because obviously the driving metrics then would be completely different or probably the opposite of what's now causing them to, to pull back. Can we just take one minute and talk about what you look for then in sites and then why, of course, it's all reversing now and why the case for you know branch tendencies is not as strong as it was you know, even 10 years ago. Well, I'm, you're going back to the 80s. Okay. So, <laughs> but I will tell you that when we look, and what was interesting about it at the time was, and I, I wasn't there that long, several years maybe, but it seemed that year in, year out, one or two of the banks would be very aggressive in their bricks and mortar growth and everybody else would kind of go on hiatus. And then, you know, that would switch and the other, it was funny because you'd be, well, what's TD doing? What's so-and-so doing? Well, they're doing nothing right now. Well, the other guys, they're really busy. So we break out their notes of branches. But back in those days, I mean, we used to count account holders in a trade area. How many account holders are there in a trade area? Where do they live? And, and where should we put a branch in there? Well, I, again, haven't worked for the bank for a very long time, but I doubt they really care that much about that part of it anymore. So, um, giving it that everything's done online. So I was going to say, like, as you were going through that, I was thinking about the sophistication of retail, sort of maybe holistically back then versus now. I could imagine you just walk to a corner and go, well, TD's on that corner and RBC's on that corner. So I guess I want to be on this corner. Like that was the sophistication versus today. And maybe let's, let's get into just kind of the, the overall scope of retail compared to all the major asset classes, maybe apartments, but the understanding of the community and the neighborhood and the income levels and the growth, like that's really integral to the success of, of a retail, whether it's regional malls or, or street front retail or anything in between. How much time do you spend studying those statistics? And, and, what, and maybe talk about just your, your role in general at JLL when you're talking to clients about those types of things. Well, I mean, it all starts with that, in my opinion. And, you know, just thinking back in those days, and probably even more so today, and I, I wouldn't be certain about this, but it was very difficult to assume that someone was going to change their bank, you know, just because you put a new bank on the other corner. I've been a TD customer all my life. My parents were TD customers. I'm going to move across to RBC because there's a fancy new branch there. That doesn't happen. Anywhere where you're into somebody's you know, finances, whether it's a, a fitness club that pulls 25 bucks out of your bank account every month, you know, it's hard for people to switch things. I think people are a little bit more, maybe today, if a retailer or a club or whatever upsets them, yeah, they'll walk, but it's not that simple. And I think it goes down to that retail decision. We always say to ourselves, it starts when she the decision maker about retail shopping in most households makes a decision about when she gets in the minivan with the kids, am I going to this shopping center today or am I going to the shopping center down the road today? And what does this one have to offer versus what does that one have to offer? And in order to be smart about retail location analysis, one needs to understand those trade areas. How many moms with soccer minivans are there in that neighborhood? How many BMWs are there in that neighborhood? My mentor was the CEO and, and founder and chairman of the board of Costco Wholesale. And he was adamant about this. It was, talk to me about a trade area. If I arrive in your city and you drive me to a site, we're done. I need to understand what makes up the trade area. Talk to me about that first. What's the funniest metric that you uh, looked at? You mentioned, you know, look at the BMWs in the area. What's one of the, the 
lesser known metrics for evaluating uh, you know, a neighborhood? God, I have to think about that one for a minute. But uh, different people look at different things. Obviously, I was with, uh, I was with Doc Martens yesterday uh, in Toronto on Tuesday and here and in Montreal on Wednesday. And, you know, they're looking for hipsters. You know, they're looking for people who want to buy their... So product. Parkdale. Parkdale, Kensington, Queen West, like that's that's their hood, right? Yeah. Like you don't need to take me to Yorkdale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so define trade area because you use that term a couple of times. That just depends, I guess, on the retailer and the scope. It totally does. I mean, you know, back in the day, we we started uh, working with Chapters Bookstores, for example, after they'd opened their first store. And you know what, Larry Stevenson and the folks there were doing in their minds was they were building libraries for profit. And they wanted to understand how many people were here. And what was very important to them was education. The higher the level of education in a, in a trade area, the greater number of readers you have and people who buy books. Because that category, as much as it's become a lot of chachka now in the indigo stores, in my opinion, is very much... Oh, soft pillows. Or soft <laughs> yeah. pillows to lie down and read three pages and fall asleep. But it was all about, you know, higher income and university education. So... You know, we did that analysis for them from coast to coast and figured out every trade area where it made sense for them to put a store. And that took probably a year to do. And then they said, okay, we want to open X number this year, go out, here are the top ones starting, you know, on the West Coast and moving right through the market. Boom, 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 boom. Let's go do them. And if your trade area for a convenience store could be, you know, a three block walking radius. Right? It, 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 absolutely. I mean, yeah. for a Starbucks, it's three blocks. For a pastry house, it's three blocks. For, for Costco, uh, Costco, it's, it's 250,000 people or, yeah. or you know, 300,000 people. They've only got, what, four stores in the GTA? Just a few. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So Those it's, guys it's really incredible. interesting. Maybe let's let's stay on this topic. I do want to talk about the finances. We want to get into COVID. So let's mm-hmm. just, I'm just setting the, the, the stage for the listeners. When you're talking about retail to your clients... Are you typically dealing with directly with tenants? Are you dealing with landlords? For the, what's the, for what's the, the, for major the most clientele? part, I mean, we we built a tenant rep business. That's what we built at Northwest Atlantic over the years. So we represented retailers. You know, you can't risk to represent retailers. You have to deal with landlords as well. We have a strong agency business at JLL that does a lot of work for landlords up and down the street fronts mostly. Mm-hmm. But our business is really the most part of it. Is and then these statistics rep. you're talking about, whether it's probably number of pet owners for pet stores or readers mm-hmm. or education for, for bookstores, where are you acquiring that data? Is that all in-house or is it an amalgamation? It's a little bit of both. I mean, we have different data sources for enclosed regional malls versus street front versus power center. But we have an in-house demographics department. We invested in that heavily back in the day. You have to pay for the data. You have to have the hardware to run it. And, you know, different retailers have different criteria. But at the end of the day, you need to have the hard data to back it up. Is that a differentiator for JLL? I mean, not to bring your competitors into this, but just talk about (laughs) what it is that, that drives your success. I like to think so. I mean, you know, when we deal with the caliber of retailers that we deal with, they're very demanding and they want to have the information. And, you know, we, a lot of it does come from landlords. And it's simply a matter of saying, if, you, if, if we can't share this information, then we're going nowhere. So last question, then we'll go COVID, pre-COVID, <laughs> post-COVID. It must be helpful then being an international organization. Absolutely. And do you get a lot of that because you've got clients that are looking to for spots in Madrid and New York and Toronto. And so you're the guy that they call here. Yeah, I mean, that's the way it works. I mean, when we came into JLL four years ago, where there's a global retail board that I'm honored to sit on. It's a small group of people. It's about a dozen of us around the world. And we meet either virtually or we were meeting in person pre-COVID, obviously, quarterly. And we share stories and we talk about what mark, what uh, tenants and what landlords are active in what markets. And uh, it's a great sharing experience. You want to jump into the meat of it? Let's, yeah, let's, uh, let's go. Let's see the timeline. 
I think maybe for a starting point, maybe we'll jump into the depths of uh, of COVID, where retail was, and then uh, we'll get into the more present. You know, as as Aaron was forced to disclose, we're now into November, so I think we can yeah officially call it post COVID. But uh, let's hope so. Yeah, so. I'm sure everybody read the headlines. They're kind of familiar with, with the, you know, the worst of the, the COVID experience. But let's kind of jump in into that moment. What was your view on, you know, where we'd be at this time frame in terms of COVID recovery in the retail sector? I imagine there was probably some dark days for some of the uh, the asset types. Most certainly. I mean, the biggest challenge when COVID struck, and this is not distinct to the retail industry or any part of the retail real estate industry, was simply the not knowing. How long is this going to last? What's this looking like? I mean, when malls got shut down and, you know, the province of Ontario was, we were one of the most locked down places on earth for the longest period of time. You couldn't golf. You could could barely golf. (laughs) There was a lot of golf sneaking, I guess they call it, sneaky golf. But, you know, you never knew when it was going to end. So one of the first things that we ended up doing was working with our tenants who were in enclosed regional malls on rent relief. And saying to landlords, I'm sorry, but the cash register ain't ringing. I'm not paying the rent. What are we going to do about this? And those were very, very tough discussions. And there was a lot of them, believe me. I remember being in Sherry Gardens, which for anybody not from Toronto, is a major mall just on the, the kind of west side of the city. And it was not the first lockdown. It was one of the subsequent ones. And there was maybe three or four stores open in the mall. And I needed to use one of them. And I was walking through this empty mall, seeing all the dark stores and this is, you know, whatever wave we were in at the time, it was not well, That's the first probably time. like 18 months into this yeah, scenario, right? Yeah, it, just was, it had, like, wasn't a couple months, right? Like no. a year and a half and it was still really shut down. Well, and both sides, you kind of, you know, you, it's a good visual for the pain because of course, yeah, as you said, cash registers are not, are not uh, ringing, but also for this landlord. I mean, Sherwood Gardens would be getting premier rent because it's a great destination mall in, uh, you know, a wealthy node of, of Toronto. Aaron lives right there for the record. And so I, that for me was, <laughs> was one of those moments where I really connected with, you know, retail's darkest moments. And the other one was, you know, of course, we'd not been downtown working in months and I ended up driving downtown in the worst days of COVID and seeing all the uh, for lease signs that have popped up along the major, you know, King Street, Queen Street, major strips across here. And I just not seen the damage done until it was the visual element. But those, you know, for me, were the kind of ones that uh, stuck out. So I guess if you're if you're mostly on the tenant rep side, how much exposure did you have? Did you have to the concerns of the landlords in uh, during all? Well, there was of this? a lot of abatement, right? Like there was a lot. Of, there was a lot of abatement, and I mean, there were programs obviously from the government to help the landlords out. There was programs to help the retailers out. There was programs to help those of us sitting at home out. So you know, we do handouts well in Canada. Inflation, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, let's not get going on that. But it was a circle, and it was interesting because early on we were rallying as a as a team, and we were rallying as an industry, and I really felt that was the case. And you know, we would have team calls, Zoom calls, and we would bring landlords. We'd bring the guys from Oxford on. We'd bring the guys from CF on. We'd bring the guys from Ivanhoe, Morgar, you name it. And the one thing that really resonated with everybody is, hey, you know what? We're all in this together. As much as I'm a tenant rep guy and I'm here to argue with you, Mr. Landlord, about rent, you know, if we don't somehow figure out a way to get out of this mess. Yeah, what do you do? Play hardball with one location and it's just going to trickle it's not, it's down not, everywhere It's not going to work. Right? It's not yeah. going to work. So, you know, you got to feel it for the retailers. You got to feel it for the people that work in the stores. You got to feel it for the consumer. You got to feel it for the landlord. I mean, it was, it was really a, an amazing rallying of the industry, I thought. Did you get a differing response from, you know, say pension fund owned malls versus, you know, one-off private investors that might have a smaller, you know, strip mall? 
Well, it's interesting you should say that because there are market leaders in any category, right? And lots of people like to see what the big guys and girls are doing out there. So we did see that, you know, a group like Rio Can or First Capital that has mostly outdoor strip centers, you know, they were great. Their business was booming. You know, their mm-hmm. their uh, vacancy rates, you know, went down. They were 190 or 98%, 99% occupied. So people weren't necessarily following them. But a single owner of a enclosed shopping center was definitely interested to find out what the big guys were doing. Mm. And they were sharing information, interestingly enough. And then on the other tenant side, I remember reading headlines then that some of the tenants, larger you know, tenants were playing hardball and just kind of dictating that we're not paying rent. Did you run into any of those along the way? Yes. I don't want to name names, but I mean, there were, there were a few that come to mind. But I can also tell you there were those that said we are, you know, a great company that makes certain mobile devices and we believe in paying our rent to the landlords because we um, just want to do that. And they did that. It's an honorable thing oh. to do, yeah. reputationally mm-hmm. yep. smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that mm-hmm. makes sense. I'm getting depressed reliving this world. <laughs> well, do, do you want to leap forward? <laughs> yeah, into, we go, uh, move on. Yeah, I was uh, in Sherway a couple of weeks ago. It was full. <laughs> it was so, awesome. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It was a depressing time. You're yeah. absolutely right. Let's do that. So there's, there, we'll, we'll kind of break this up a little bit. So regional malls, strip malls, and street fun, because I think they all have different stories. Sure. So let's they start do. with the big ones, the regional malls. Again, I, I was also in Sherway recently, and it seems to be back full. There's still some vacancies. I think there's still some turnover. It feels like some of them are downsizing. Like I've noticed some stores are going to smaller footprints. Mm-hmm. But maybe just talk in general how regional malls across the country have escaped from COVID, yeah. what that looks like. And, and just for context, let's put in some valuations and, and rents too, because I think that does tell part of the story. Well, yeah, we listen, we could talk till you know dinner time about all of that. One of the saving graces in this country is that we have gigantic, gigantic pension funds behind these the owners of shopping centers and close regional shopping centers in this country, number one. Number two, by the way, they have very long-term vision. You know, these are 40-year time horizons. Experiential retail is what they're focused on, right? Yeah. They are, exactly. And they are prepared to continue to, they have demonstrated that they're prepared to continue to invest. I mean, you look at a, at a mall like Yorkdale, arguably the best in the country, but there's been three successive expansions of that mall in the last 15 years. You know, Oxford and, and their partners are putting their money where their mouth is and they're taking their best asset and they're improving it. And... That's issue number one. Issue number two is, you know, at about 16 square feet per capita of retail space in this country compared to 23, 24 in the U.S., we're not overbuilt. We have discipline around the market. And that comes from the pension fund ownerships. It comes from the banks that lend the money to people to build shopping centers. And, you know, you can go to the U.S. and drive down any any interstate and, you know, two miles down the road, there's another mall. We don't have vacant, Half vacant. We don't have that in Canada. 600,000 square feet. 100%. 100%. So there's some things that have, I think, saved us in, the, in this country, if you will. To your point about what's happening with rents, there was some very creative deal-making structures put in place during COVID, percentage rent deals, tenants who were transacting were looking for gigantic tenant inducement dollars, sometimes in the hundreds of dollars a square foot. Those deals are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when you listen to the major landlords speak, they'll tell you, we need to get back to contract rents, pre-COVID contract rents. That's where they need to get back to. Is there a shift in the type of tenant 
for these regional malls. We'll focus on regional malls. We'll get to the other, you know, sub asset classes. Like I'll, I'll yeah. sure way is easy because that's the one that Adam and both live. So sure, you know, of course they've got a Tesla shop. There's a, yep. a marijuana store. Like they've got some stuff in there. They gotta have those. It's yeah. Is that are you seeing a change or is it still yeah. predominantly clothing I, and shoes? I mean, the malls have traditionally been well not anchored by fashion. They have been places to go for fashion. Right. You know, whether it was the department stores of yesteryear or you know what's what happened twenty years ago. And there just aren't that many fashion retailers out there. Fashion is something that can be done by e-commerce to some degree. Don't but, buy pants online. That's no, all. <laughs> exactly. But I was about going to say that. But, you know, we're seeing a movement towards more entertainment, certainly more F&B in malls. I mean, you look at a place like Sherwood. What's F&B? Sorry. Food and beverage. Okay. That's what you eat every yeah. day and yeah. drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is it, uh, no, the acronym. Just want to make sure I'm holding on to the Probably a lot here. more than the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> and so Sherway has done a phenomenal job with her F&B all across the whole north side of that property. And those yeah. are some of the best performing restaurants yeah. in, in Cactus Toronto. Club, the keg. Yeah. yeah. You can't get a table at the Cactus Club. Crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Before we move off of regional malls into the others, I heard through the grapevine, I mean, it was, it was Jonathan Gitlin, the president CEO of Rio Can, talking about foot traffic and mm-hmm. how Mondays and Fridays post-COVID are way busier than before. In fact, sometimes outdoing their weekends. Maybe mm-hmm. just talk about that impact. And interestingly, worker productivity is down on those days. And we're not <laughs> yeah. sure how those two relate to each and other. Is, how does, I mean, how does that impact just in general, just the retail malls or, or sort of the, the um, uh, regional malls? Well, you know, what's interesting, what we're hearing from the major ownership uh, groups for regional malls is that while traffic is down or not back to pre-COVID levels, conversion sales are back up. So that tells you that the less people are going to the shopping center, but when they're there, they're spending more money than they were paying when, than they, when they were spending before. So what that tells us when we look at it in, in, you know, dig down into it is when people make the decision to go to the mall, it's for a purpose. I'm going there to buy a pair of running shoes. I'm going there to buy a phone. I'm going there to buy this. And they might buy two or three or four other things while they happen to be there. But they're going with the intention of making a purchase, not just wandering around. Because around. nobody wants to catch COVID because they go window shopping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't even buy anything. I got sick. <laughs> Would it, that make foot traffic less relevant if the per head spend is up? Sure. Because yeah, ultimately, absolutely. that's what's driving this whole, uh, whole system. So, yeah. Before we move off regional malls, I worry we're not going to get back to it. What's the, are there, is there a future state? Like, I know a lot of them is just densification. Like, we're seeing a ton of those parking lots turning into apartments and condos. What do you expect to also transpire? Like, I'm, I'm wondering if it's, you know, gyms and uh, movie theaters and just sort of adding on more sort of, adjacent experiences to to the regional centers? Well, listen, I mean, everybody with a regional mall, it seems, took the time during COVID to go out and get approvals for densification projects. I mean, uh, Sherway, again, not to harp, continue to harp on it, but, you know, the... Kind of like Fairview owes us some money for this. There there, there you go. The massing plan at, at Sherway and the massing plan at Fairview, for example, are, you know, it's, it, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's great. But having said that, if we're going to put this many people on top of these shopping centers or on the shopping center properties, we've got to make sure we provide other retail opportunities for them as well. You know, a lot of these regional malls don't have a, sh- a grocery store. A convenience yeah. center. Yeah. Right. Hit the, hit the where are you going to go buy your smokes, right? Uh, like, a, a gym, yeah. you know, a beer store, all these things. And you've got to make sure you're going to be able, you can't have that many people stuck somewhere. And, you know, when you look at certainly what the city of Toronto is doing with parking counts on condominium towers now, where you're building three, 400, 500 units with 50 parking stalls. You know, how are people going to, they're on a car to get, to leave Sherway to go to a shopping center that has a grocery store three miles away. 
That's interesting. Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm assuming, I'm sure Cadillac Fairview, also the owner of this building, by the way, that we're sitting in, <laughs> has thought that through and is, is planning that they're into, smart. Their, they're very smart into their, into their development. Let's go to strip malls. I think that's the next sort of category down. And you kind of already mentioned it. They really had a much easier time through COVID. And I, I always kind of joke, it's almost a pandemic proof, right? Liquor stores and pharmacies. And so if you had those in your strip malls, you had tons of a traffic. Uh, it took no three what. months before you started seeing those appear on uh, brokers uh, sales packages when they're <laughs> selling properties. Pandemic proof and big bold letters across the front. And like, right. it catches your attention, right? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Makes sense. You know, those assets are more akin and more easily set up for curbside pickup, for example, which was a big deal. You order something, you drive up. I mean, Walmart did a great job with their curbside pickup uh, program during COVID. But, you know, the convenience of being able to, hey, I, I want this. I'll be there at noon. And there it is. And somebody runs it out, throws in the back of your car and off you go. You can't do that so easily at a regional mall. But the whole notion just of the... There's obviously a lot more strip centers out there. Everybody needs the things that strip centers offer. Food, drug, all those things. Obviously, the, there were aspects and tenants in those centers that still were impacted. You know, the, the, most of them have a roadhouse or some sort of F&B offering. Sorry, that's food and beverage. Thank you. Thank you. Um, some sort of F&B offering, which were heavily impacted. So, you know, it wasn't all, you know, roses and uh, bubbles floating around everybody's head, but they certainly fared better than the malls did in terms of closing down. Any real big success stories there? Any companies that would have seen an acceleration just because they're, uh, you know, Dollarama comes was, to mind. Yeah. They seem to be a proliferation of Dollaramas all over the place. Yeah. I mean, listen, fitness was impacted for sure. Theaters, you know, we've worked with Cineplex for 30 years. Obviously, they were one of the most greatly impacted. But again, we've all seen the lineups and probably been in many of them. And I'm sure both you guys have, not me, but in the liquor stores. And again, grocery and just the ability to keep one's family fed and keep the food yeah. stocked up at home. Post-COVID, are there any changes to the makeup of sort of strip power centers? Has it changed our behaviors using using that that retail component? Well, I think it has. I mean, as we spoke about a moment ago, I mean, there's traffic is not back in the malls, even though people are spending more, but so what are they doing? Are they frequent? I, I think people found it, geez, I can go and get almost everything I need, you know, at my local strip center. If I got to drive, you know, another five blocks down to the other strip center because this one doesn't have what I need, they'll do that. It's not that difficult. So I think there has been a change in consumer patterns as a, as a result of COVID to some degree. Interesting. Yeah. And it's easier to get in and out. Yeah. Not, you know, to deal with park. You can see the front door. There it yeah. is. I'm going in. I'm getting what I need. I'm getting out. Yeah. Any idea what landlords are thinking in terms of, you know, the longer term, you know, you know, trying to do a recomposition on your mall takes a considerable amount of time. You know, what would they be thinking about now in a 10 year time horizon in a world where pandemics can, can do this? Or is it just, uh, you know, typical human behavior where people go, wow, that was tough and then forget about it and uh, move on? I hope they don't forget about it. I don't believe that they're forgetting about it. I mean, I do hear talk about, okay, these things can happen again. Let's not be, you know, let's not pat ourselves on the back too strongly that we got through this. So I think operationally, they're, they're thinking about how do, we, how do we make this work? But I also think that they're spending a lot of time, and this goes back to pre-COVID as well, but I think COVID accelerated this, was how do we get more people into these buildings, into these shopping centers? How do we get them to stay longer? Because we know it's proven when we increase dwell time, that's the amount of time somebody spends in a building, we increase conversion. They spend more. It's simple. So what does that? Food does that. Mm -hmm. Entertainment does that. And it doesn't just have to be a theater. I mean, there's all kinds of funky, cool entertainment concepts floating around out there these days. Think about Canada Goose. You're going to buy a Canada Goose jacket. Yeah. My kids love it. There's every time in the mall, they want to go, let's go jump over what, the... What's the experience? There's a, there's a floor of like a river and you walk through this sort of dark 
hallway and when you step on the floor panels that are like basically just TVs, it makes splashing noises. So you're kind of running through a pretend river and there's a cold room with snow and you can throw snowballs at each other. Like they just... So, I don't even know if you're wow. in there to buy it. So, I've so, never bought a jacket. I don't even know. Yeah, yet. You need I've, to. I've you probably go time. there every weekend. Yeah, yeah, you're talking there. about it. Yeah, it's not going to let you in pretty soon. But <laughs> that's experiential real, retail, right? That's what people want. They, they, they want the fun aspect of things. You know, we're working with a group at the U.S. They've just opened their first store in uh, West Edmonton Mall. They're looking at the Toronto market called It's Sugar. And that is experiential retail. That is wow, like I'm selling candy, but I'm selling candy like to the universe here. This is the coolest thing ever. And, uh, you know, it's for, anyways, I won't get into their whole, I don't want to give their story away, but. What's uh, the, um, I'm sorry, I should remember this, but what's the Italian store slash restaurant that Italy. opened up? It, 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 Italy. Italy, Italy. Yep. Are we seeing more of that type yep. of environment? Yep. I mean, it's it's public knowledge now. We, we work with them and have uh, transacted a lease for them at Sherway. Right. So that'll open in about a year's time from right. now. That will yes. keep me in the mall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go. Well, it, exactly. <laughs> it will keep you in the mall. And, um, you know, they do big volume and it's a, it's a combination for those that haven't been to Italy, either, either globally or in Toronto. It's a combination of restaurant and grocery, obviously with a gigantic Italian slant. And of course, we all know how great Italian food is. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great. Okay. Well, let's go to the, I think the, most challenging story is just street front retail. I mean, anybody that kind of wanders around still sees some four lease signs more than pre-pandemic. Maybe just talk yeah. about the impact. When I, when I referenced it earlier, it was all street front that I was talking about. Yeah, like I think, I mean, walking around Sherway, I mean, I, I think there's some vacancy probably more than pre-pandemic, but it's it's being absorbed, right? Like there are tenants. I mean, at what lease rate, I guess you can, you can just debate, but probably with strip malls, same thing. I'm sure there are the haves and the have nots, but for the most part, it's it's recovered. The street front seems to be still struggling. Maybe just kind of talk through what you're seeing there. Yeah, it, there's no doubt it is. It's sad because I really think that what happens at the street level in our major thoroughfares in this country and in any market for that matter, really define a market. And to see a bunch of for lease signs or boarded up or hoarded up sore fronts is, is sad. That is also where you find the greatest proliferation of mom and pop retailers, you know, restauranters, the dry cleaners, the this, the that. And those are the people who, to a large degree, were stung during COVID. So it's hard for them to recover. A lot of them went out of business. A lot of them went bankrupt. A lot of them, you know, went off and did other things. Who knows? But getting them to come back into the market is a struggle. Take dry cleaning as a category. I mean, none of us were wearing fancy shirts and suits every week, so we weren't going to the dry cleaners that often. Is that coming back? I think it is. I mean, one of the, somebody told me the other day that they're, they were hearing that uh, guys mostly, and this is a male-dominated comment, are out buying suits five at a time now because either they put on a bunch of weight or they lost a bunch of weight during COVID and they got to get back to the office. They got to look good. Or styles have just changed. Or maybe styles have changed. a lot tighter than they used to be, right? Or big shoulders out, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, street front retail, I mean, when you look at the cores of our major cities, as I mentioned, I was in Montreal yesterday, it's, you know, St. Catherine Street is coming back, like Bloor Street is coming back. But when you get to some of the secondary nodes, just off the edges of the financial cores in the major downtowns, it's still, it's still quiet. I mean, Mondays and Fridays in downtown Toronto are still very quiet. You know, it's really curious because, you know, think about this from the whole, holistically, you got the work from home. So everyone's in their communities more often. Mm-hmm. And I'll use the beaches. I grew up in the beaches, which is sort of the southeast end of Toronto, but a, a kind of a, a curious note because it's really hard to get in and get out of. So everyone that's there is there. And the Queen Street East strip was, and growing up for me, was just you were always down there going for walks. And it was kind of a community part and all the stores were mom and pop shops. And sure. I'm not sure what it looks like today, but I suspect there's quite a bit of vacancy still down there. 
maybe less because of just the location, but you're seeing that in all communities, wherever you are in Toronto neighborhoods. How do you fix it? Because it's almost like, you know, the build it and they will come, but if they're not there, no one's going to want to be there in the first place from a retailer's perspective, right? You're not wrong about that. I would just say, I mean, I, I spend time in the beaches. We live on the east side, not all the way out there. And we frequently go through there. And it's it's better than I would have thought it would be right. from a vacancy point of view. But, you know, listen, what makes neighborhoods? What makes neighborhoods and what defines area neighborhoods and what starts it all are the bars and the restaurants and the artists. And those are the people that come into a Leslieville. Or if you look at Queen Street West in Toronto years ago, it was those people that came and they created a beatnik type environment that was cool and hip and everybody wanted to be there and, oh, let's go check out this greatest bar and this greatest restaurant. Well, then the gaps and the other brands of the world figure it out and they go, wow, we got to open a store there. And, you know, two things happen. One, the rents go up. And the cool hip people go, I don't want to be near the gap. I'm getting the heck out of Dodge. And they move further west. That's why we have Queen West, Queen Street West, West West. Queen West, Queen West West. And I think there's a fourth (laughs) one I I don't even know. But that's all getting done. Now now what's happening is, and and King Street was the same thing. And, you know, I I love Allied Properties, but Allied Properties bought up all the restaurants where people were paying $35 a square foot in rent. And when those leases came due, hey, sorry, Mr. Restaurant, it's now 70 bucks a foot. Those guys all moved to Dundas. And what's interesting about what's happening up there is a lot of them are now buying property. Mm. So they're buying a storefront, maybe with an apartment above, and they might be living on top of it. But once you start buying real estate, you know, or if you're not in it for the real estate play, if you're an artist or a bartender or whatever, you're staking your claim. And you're saying, this is where we're going to be. And you've you've got some really cool stuff happening out in the junction and Dundas Street West. It's the next one. Yeah. So is it just take longer? Is that what we're seeing when we walk around and we see all the, the boarded up stores or the furly signs? It just takes longer well, for the street If you were, if you were a small absorb. business or entrepreneur, would you be dying to jump back into Well, no. Uh, I, or, and right and who is it, right? I guess like who who's the one that's taking that leap of faith? I mean, recession coming and high interest rates aside, it's, I mean, that's just a further headwinds. But is it just because that story takes much longer to play out. I think I think it does. Then a regional mall where Cadillac Fairview just goes, okay, well, I'm going to, rather than 70 bucks, I'm going to charge 50 bucks and there's going to be 10 tenants that put their hand up. Absolutely. I mean, it, to compare a regional mall to a to a street front like, you know, King West or, you know, it's, it's not even apples and oranges. It's... How, what impact does the landlords have? Because you've got a whole bunch of just private, independent landlords there too. Does that play a factor? They're not as connected. They don't really necessarily appreciate that... Yeah, they were getting 30 bucks pre-COVID, but now it's 15 and that's just the reality and they're going to hold off. It, it plays into it in a very large way. Yeah, a very large way. You know, again, on Queen with a client this week and pointing them at some space and they're like, we love this. And I said, well, that problem with that is the landlord is very difficult. And, you know, that space is turned over 10 times in the last 10 years. And there's a reason why. And their name is? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Technical errors. <laughs> We want to end on a high note because we did get pretty, uh, you know, unpleasant at, at the beginning. What projects are you working on right now that you're excited about or interesting or is that, you know, a great... What confidential share? information yeah. can you share with yeah. us? No um, one's listening. It's just yeah. amongst friends here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Turn off the mic. Listen, I'm a believer in, in retail. I think there are some amazing people out there working in retail organizations that are committed to, you know, the industry and, and providing a better experience for the consumer. I really believe that. If I didn't believe that, I couldn't get up every day and do what I do. You know, we work with some fantastic clients that I'm learning things from every single day. So that charges me up. I think that from a landlord side of it, I'm seeing renewed renewed vigor. And it's kind of across the board. I mean, 
it is difficult at the street front level, like we just talked about. But, you know, whether it be First Cap or a Rio Can or a Cadillac or an Oxford or an Ivanhoe or whoever, I mean, they're all back in business. They want to do business. They maybe made themselves a little leaner, but they'd also have taken the time to understand their assets. They've taken the time to take these projects through some development opportunities to densify these sites. And they know where they're going. They've got a plan for the next 10 years or 15 years, 20 years in some cases. So that's positive. I love that vision of what retail's got. Uh, I'm excited for Italy at Sherway for that. <laughs> yeah, if nothing else, <laughs> it might be takeaway. Oh, invitation to the opening party. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Thanks a lot for sharing you know, your years of experience, everybody, today. That was a really interesting conversation. Of course, thanks to First National for powering the podcast. That is it for today. Stay tuned for the after show coming up uh, right now. But Tim, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tim. Really appreciate it. Good combo. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Aaron and I talk about the conversation that just took place. We haven't done retail in depth in a while. We touched on it in a bunch of different episodes. We haven't done a deep dive in a while. So I thought this was a, a worthwhile endeavor, given that we've not really you know, put the spotlight on this asset class in a while. Conversation was interesting. Obviously, you know, Tim knows his universe inside and out. A couple of things stood out when he's talking about sophistication in real estate and buying decisions and how you can get, you know, really granular in terms of where you want to place your retail. I always think back to uh, my dad, who I've mentioned on this podcast before. He bought a lot of retail a really long time ago. And so I asked him, you know, about strategy then. And, you know, not that not not to kind of you know downplay the lack of sophistication then, but one of the things that always made me laugh is uh, he goes, "Well, always buy on the sunny side of the street because that's where people are going to walk." And you're like, "Yeah, it's true." You know, like I get that. That make that makes sense. You know, I walk on the sunny side of the street. <laughs> so your and then your dollars from your pocket get slowly siphoned off to the various retailers along uh, along your path. So it's, it's not wrong. You know, I think that obviously the analytics side of real estate has exploded in the last. We'll say 10 years, but you know, this, this is obviously a longer time frame. Since before that. your dad bought real estate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, for something like retail as well, where the difference of one block can be night or day in terms of rent and sales and exposure and value, you know, the most obvious examples I could think of would be, you know, the, the two high profile streets in Toronto and Vancouver, where you get those flagship Hermes stores and things like that. And, you know, if you were to move your store one block north, what does that do to your profile of your super luxe brand? You know, there's less, there's less obvious examples as well. You know, as you compare it to industrial or something like that, you know, there it is, you know, there's obviously metrics that people pay attention to there in a big way, but I don't know that moving a block has the same impact in industrial. You know, now you're 1.1 kilometers from the airport versus one. Does that really impact, you know, your shipping capacity? Probably not. I found it interesting. Well, two things in my mind. One, the way that he naturally segregate so the regional malls sort of strip and power centers and then storefront and that's just there are three categories i'd never obviously well aware that there's lots of different variations of retail but he kind of very clearly that was kind of the way that he thought about it which now i will think about it that way too everybody likes sort of compartmentalizing real estate so there's one way to do it the other one and i mean we talked a lot about regional malls and strip power centers what i thought was really telling at the you know near the end or now just about the impact on COVID has had on street front and the way that he kind of talked about, you know, the artists and the restaurateurs and that's the first signs. And, and it was almost matter of fact, when you talk about 
that's analytics, and yet there's something that's very much sort of a, a how you feel about the the neighborhood, and you can do that in your mind, you know, no matter where you live, about an up and coming gentrifying neighborhood. Are there artists and new restaurateurs? If yes, then it is gentrifying. If no, well, then it's not. Like I, I it, it is whether that's statistically accurate or not. I think that is kind of just the way it works on street front retail, which I thought was really. I never really put that together before. If you could spend the time to get the data on uh, artist per square kilometer and things like that, that you could actually map out like the cool factor to retailers. Those lines, is that what you're thinking? Well, I, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that. I mean, it's one of those things. It's you know, there's your guts right. You know, 80% of the time, regardless of what the numbers say. And it's one of the, I mean, I'm a sports guy. So, you know, hockey analytics is something that's always come up. And there are these old school and new school and the new school that don't even like watching the hockey games. They just look at the numbers and the old school that don't look at the numbers, just watch the hockey games. And they're both right. Right. And so I think in retail, in this particular instance, it's kind of the same thing. Like you can look at all the numbers all day long, but if you walk the street and, you know, there's, you don't feel the vibe of the gentrification, then it probably isn't, no matter what the numbers say. Well, to further your sports analogy, I'm not a sports guy, so I'm getting in over my head here, but sports gamblers, a lot of them won't even watch the game. People are doing high volume sports gambling. This is considered a waste of time. They've done their research and it's going to play out how it plays out. And over a certain number of games, they're going to have their statistical advantage. So that would be what you're talking about, the data-driven people in real estate, where maybe you don't you know, get the same benefit from just walking the street and feeling the energy and deciding if this is uh, you know, the place to put your, your capital or not. And I'm sure, to your point, if you had, could track the number of artists you know, residing in a per square kilometer, that would be a, a tall tale sign that the area is gentrifying even before the storefront artist, you know, stores start popping up, right? So <laughs> yeah, I guess that the numbers would get ahead of the, the gut feel. Yeah, rather than uh, walkability scores, you'll have artiste ratios and things like that. But, <laughs> yeah, Love it. Yeah. And just to backtrack on something you said as well about the different types of retail is you do see that division be more pronounced. You know, in cap rate reports, they'll break out all three because they're experiencing very different realities. Whereas I don't see a lot of cap rate reports where industrial has a breakdown of cross dock versus warehousing versus Cold manufacturing. It's, yeah, it's just kind of, you know, North Mississauga, industrial, here's the numbers. There you go. So it's, it's not wrong. And they are experiencing very different realities in those three categories. So you definitely would not want to lump them together and make investment decisions. Yeah, I mean retail, like all asset classes, you can just go down this rabbit hole. And I'm sure have we have Tim on for another couple of hours, we could have just kept going because it really does feel like you you can just keep peeling back numbers and and diving in you know more deeply into. You know, we didn't even really get into net and gross rents and what people are paying for TIs and all that kind of stuff. The, te- the technical side of it, you know, there there's other examples you'd find in Toronto. You know, down south of Etobicoke. You've got the Rio Can property with a giant cineplex and accompanying gigantic parking lot that they're now going to develop and you know build out. So it's like 500 units. I think they're building a condos there. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not necessarily a direct retail injection, but it's injection into a an asset that you have under the retail umbrella. This is also meant to be complementary to it. You know, those 500 units all need to. I mean, well, go to movies, I guess, but uh, other types of retail yeah. as well. That might be more of a daily needs basis. We'll have Jonathan Gitlin on again soon, and we'll ask him about why they decided to break ground now. Like they literally just started started digging a hole, like maybe a month ago. So you think about that middle end of COVID, middle of a recession. You know, it doesn't seem like a good time to start developing six five thousand units, five hundred units of apartment or condos, but they're doing it anyway. I don't think you're incentivizing him to come on the podcast. Oh, he'll be on. He's going <laughs> to come on. 
All right. Well, that's that for this one. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to the First National Power of the podcast. Thanks to Informa and JLL for the opportunity to have the interview with Tim. Talk to you again. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.